Murder can be abrupt, cold, and unexpected. Many of the murders we hear about today happen quickly and leave family, friends, communities, and occasionally the nation in shock. But perhaps some of the most horrifying murders are those that take place over literal months. A slow, stalking, tense buildup, often controlled by one or two individuals. These perpetrators are usually labeled as serial killers, and they're the stuff of nightmares. For the Stoute family, back in 2012, that danger came from within. The Stoute family lived in Springfield, Missouri. Diane and Mark Stoute, the matriarch and patriarch, secured a modest home for their four children, all ranging in age from 9 to 24. Sean was the oldest, followed by his sisters, Sarah and Rachel. Brian, the youngest member of the family, was only nine when their quiet life suddenly took a dark turn. While the Stoudes were by no means wealthy, they were a decent representation of a middle-lower-class American family. Diane and Mark each had comfortable places in the community. They were religious people, and the family loved music. Mark was a lead singer and guitarist of a blues band that played locally. He had a hard time making ends meet and was often working odd jobs. Mark would sometimes bartend, which only brought him closer to alcohol, which his wife would later bring up as a concern. Diane was a church organist and nurse. She was the breadwinner of the family. With four children, three of whom were living at home, it's easy to imagine that Diane and Mark were starting to feel the pressure. Diane probably more so, as she was the main source of income. The children were struggling in one way or another, some with disability, others with settling down in life. Sean was on the autism spectrum and lived at home with his parents and his younger sister, who was in the fourth grade and having trouble in school. The eldest sister, Sarah, had graduated university in high standing, but wasn't able to find a job despite making the dean's list throughout her academic career. Her student debt was piling up quickly, and she too moved in with her parents. However, Rachel stood out from her siblings in that she was the obvious favorite and very bright. She did well in school and had a stunning array of interests, skills, and hobbies. Diane would often share photos of Rachel on social media sites and openly praise her over the others. While this may seem relatively normal, a parent doting on one child in particular, Diane's preference for her daughter soon became an ominous sign that something might not be quite right in the Staude family, and the secrets would soon come out, although it was hard to tell who the real victims were. Mark died suddenly in April of 2012, but there wasn't a lot of initial suspicion, as he wasn't exactly leading a healthy lifestyle. Comments were made that a large part of the cause was likely Mark's drinking problem, and those observations came from Diane. Bandmates that he had been with the previous Friday noted that he's been slurring his words when speaking, and his skin appeared yellow. He passed away on Easter Sunday. Shortly after his death, Diane received $20,000 from her husband's life insurance policy and moved the family into a bigger home. Jeff Sippy, the pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church, where Diane played the organ, said he knew immediately that something was wrong. There was nothing in me that believed it was a natural cause. I didn't believe that he died of a stroke, a heart attack, or in his sleep. I just didn't. There's nothing scientific. 
There's nothing professional about my observation. But my first words were, no way. He did not just die. Jeff would later play an important part in getting the gears turning. Only five months later, Sean Staude was dead. He was 26 years old. When questioned, Diane told police that Sean seemed to have the flu, or at least symptoms of the flu. Headaches, chills, nausea, and diarrhea. All in the weeks before his death. Diane also happened to mention that Sean had a history of seizures. With only that information to go on at the time of Sean's death, it could only be ruled a death from natural causes. Luckily, an autopsy was actually done on Sean, although his prior medical condition swayed the examiner from looking into a deeper cause. But both Sean and his father had something in common. There were dried rings of blood around their mouths. In a red flag moment, Rachel posted on Facebook shortly after Sean's death, a selfie with the words, don't think I've seen mom so chilled out like this in a long time. In the photo, Rachel was smiling. For many people in the community, including the pastor who would later come forward, that was a red flag. The bodies were cremated quickly without further questioning, in part because Diane made it known that Mark's lifestyle, which included very regular, heavy alcohol consumption, was probably what led to his death and the strange ring of blood. But that clue was hard to write off with Sean, the eldest. Shortly after, Sarah was brought to the hospital in critical condition. Her body was in organ failure. She had a brain bleed, and doctors were concerned that she was showing signs of neurological damage. And then the tip came in from the family's pastor, who at first remained anonymous, but expressed concern that the two Staude family members had died in quick succession, and it looked like Sarah might be next. In a 2022 interview, Pastor Sippy explained that he never experienced two family members of his congregation dying in the same way that close together. In my 30-some years of ministry, I've never had two family members die in the same type of situations ever. Now I see someone fighting for their life in circumstances and events that are just completely foreign to me. I shared that I am a pastor and I have a family who's experienced two deaths in a short proximity of time and now has another family member in ICU. I believe that these were circumstances that needed to be investigated. When the detectives followed up to check on Sarah, they were told by her doctor that they hadn't figured out what was wrong with her, despite running countless tests. Eventually, they started thinking poisoning might be a possibility. At this point, Sarah was confined to a hospital room and only getting worse. Authorities quickly got hold of samples from Sean Staude's autopsy. They were tested for the presence of ethylene glycol, an ingredient in antifreeze, and the test came back positive. Because ethylene glycol isn't normally a part of toxology screenings, it was missed during the first autopsy. This component requires a specific test. Detective Neil McAmis of the Springfield Police Department was quick to track down Diane and ask her questions about her daughter's condition and previous deaths in the family. Diane showed very little emotion when it came to Sarah's illness. She was extremely calm, but McAmis was very aware that he had to play the interview carefully. He couldn't just come out and accuse Diane of foul play she could just have likely have been a victim of tragedy. 
but there were a few things that were tipping McAmos towards believing that something wasn't quite right here. As the interview played out, McAmos focused on Diane's career and knowledge as a nurse. He expressed surprise that she couldn't really explain what happened with her husband, son, and daughter. McAmos continued questioning Diane until she started to make mistakes. Some of her explanations just outright didn't make sense, and she was all over the place with outlining what had happened when. And then she mentioned antifreeze. Put it really short and sweet. I knew they were drinking antifreeze. How much would you put in? A couple of teaspoons, maybe. At first, Diane told detectives that both Mark and Sean had been drinking antifreeze as a way to commit suicide. Even if you don't know how this story ends, that seems incredibly unlikely, as poisoning is a painful and slow way to die. As McAmos pushed more and more, Diane eventually admitted that she was the one giving them antifreeze. Once it was all out in the open, Diane told authorities how she really felt about her family and what had driven her to murder. She confessed to hating Mark, to considering her son a burden and a pest, and wanted to get Sarah out of the way, as she was jobless and bogged down in debt. By then I hated his guts. He would throw things at me. He would throw things at the kids. Both Sean and Sarah would just basically, I don't know, trash the house and never helped support or even contribute. Sean would be interfering with whatever I would do. So if he was just a constant bother, wouldn't leave you alone? Well, he was more than a bother. Would a pest, would that be a good word for it? No, it was more than that. I'm not a perpetual killer. I'm just stupid. I regret doing it. I really do. Detective Amos was surprised by just how much she truly seemed to mean it when she said she despised the three of them. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. There were times I didn't know what to say or, or how to react. She clearly saw them as a burden and had no problem getting rid of them as quickly as possible to free up a perfect life for her and Rachel. But don't forget, there was another daughter, Brianna, still living at home and in the fourth grade at the time. Now that they had a confession, authorities took Diane into custody immediately and got a search warrant for the Staudet house. During their search, they found a small purple diary that belonged to Rachel. For some reason, even though her mother thought she was by far the brightest of all her children, Rachel wrote detailed plans concerning the murder of her family members. At first, the diary revealed that she was aware of Diane's plan and trying to come to terms with it. But it became obvious that Rachel had actually gotten involved in the poisonings as the entries went on. Rachel was asked to come down for questioning and initially tried to write off the diary entries as dreams. But eventually she admitted that she had been helping Diane. Rachel was also the one who explained the reasoning behind using antifreeze. They had looked into plants and other forms of poison but decided the tasteless antifreeze would be the easiest way to go as Mark and Sean wouldn't detect anything. Antifreeze sold in stores to the general public has a strong bittering agent as a warning if consumed. The antifreeze that Rachel and her mother bought online didn't. Mark and Sean had no idea they were being slowly poisoned over months and were probably just as confused and scared as everyone else when they started getting seriously ill. 
adding that once Sarah was dead, she and Diane planned to kill Brianna as well. When were you guys gonna kill Brianna? Sometime after Sarah. Her confession may in part have had something to do with how comfortable she was. Despite helping her mother with the murders, Rachel was concerned about the new house and staying in the room where Sean had died. This is why Sarah was in the hospital in the first place. Rachel had begged Diane not to let Sarah die at home because she was so uncomfortable with the thought of living in a house where two of her siblings had passed. How are you guys getting her the drinks without her knowing about it? She's on the computer a lot, on YouTube a lot, on sites like that a lot. And she's easily distracted. It wouldn't take much to like get whatever drink she did have and just slip it real quick. Is that what you did? Yeah. I'd like to know why you guys eventually took, you know, when Sarah got so bad, I know you guys said you thought that she was pretty much dead, but why did you take her to the hospital? I didn't want another one to die in the house. And why is that? Because houses are nasty after somebody's died in it. Okay, and what does that mean? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? I get a lot of nightmares. Like yeah. after Sean died, I moved into his room and it was awful, awful, awful in there. I kept feeling things in there. I just didn't want that again. Didn't really think I would get caught. Stupid now that I think on it. But no, I didn't really think I would. Did you want it to just be you and your mother? Yeah. And why is that? Because she understands me. She doesn't annoy me. The diary also revealed that Rachel wasn't fully invested in the murders, but was going along with them anyway. She wrote, It's sad when I realize how my father will pass on in the next two months. Sean, my brother, will move on shortly after. It will be tough getting used to the changes, but everything will work out. Interestingly, during the interview, Rachel echoed a lot of the same sentiments her mother held when asked why each family member was chosen to die. As far as dad, it was for a little peace. Sean, because he was annoying and worse than a pest. Sarah was just nosy. For anyone who has siblings, children, or parents, it's not as if unkind thoughts about them being annoying a past, a little too rowdy are unusual. But the jump to murder is not by any means a logical one. As this story slowly unraveled, those close to the Staudes were shocked. But a few also noted that Diane hadn't ever really acted like a concerned or grieving mother. Keep in mind that people grieve differently. So Diane's constant social media presence, combined with the lack of services for Sean after his death, were odd, but initially considered by some to be her way of dealing with or not dealing with grief. A relative even came forward to say that he'd found out about Sean's death when it was mentioned by somebody else. 
Of course, an investigation wouldn't be simple at this point. Mark and Sean had both been cremated, and the authorities had only Sarah and her strange symptoms to go by. At the time the police got involved, Diane had collected Mark's life insurance, purchased a new house, and was planning on taking a vacation to Florida. But Rachel wasn't cold as her mother. She was staying in the same room Sean had died in and was uncomfortable with the living situation, most likely from being constantly reminded of her part in what had happened. So how did they do it? Diane eventually admitted that she and Rachel had both dosed Mark and Sean with the antifreeze. Mark regularly drank energy drink, and the women contaminated these drinks with antifreeze. Sean preferred soda. Obviously, both Diane and her daughter had something off about them. During the investigation, a note was found in Rachel's purse with an odd poem on it. Only the quiet ones will be left. My mother, my little sister, and me. Unfortunately for Diane, Rachel seemed unable to keep this secret to herself. Sarah and her younger sister, Brianna, dodged a bullet. While Mark and Sean were considered the biggest burdens in the family, Diane was also frustrated with Sarah's lack of job and her youngest daughter's learning disabilities. After Sarah's death, she was planning on poisoning Brianna as well. As the trail proceeded, Sarah got the chance to stand up and speak to her mother and sister. Her statement is as follows. I prefer to be a survivor than a victim. I forgive my mom for what she did to me. But she not only took away my dad and brother, she took away my lifestyle my livelihood and independence. Sarah wasn't exaggerating. Once on the Dean's list and a college graduate, she now requires a guardian and resides in an assisted living facility due to the neurological and physical defects caused by the poison. Sarah now maintains a Facebook profile that details the case. In May 2015, as a part of a plea deal to testify against her mother, Rachel pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 2057. Diane was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2016, after entering an Alford plea, which acknowledges that there is enough evidence to convict her, but she never actually pled guilty. Luckily, Brianna Stade also survived, though there isn't much information about where she is now. Obviously, she was removed from the situation and placed in foster care and is hopefully doing well wherever she is. In a final twist, one not uncommon in courtrooms, both women have appealed to vacate their guilty pleas. Rachel has insisted that she suffers from fear of men, which made her go along with whatever her male lawyers told her to do. She actually said, being in an interview room alone with the male detectives was like being flayed alive. However, there was no chance for Rachel or Diane to get out of this. It had been made clear several times that they had researched how to kill their family thoroughly, and Sean's autopsy results proved that antifreeze had part in his death. For the public and those close to the case, there are still so many questions that have gone unanswered. Why did Rachel agree to go along with the murders? Seen by many as a bright young woman, she likely could have talked her mother out of her intentions. Instead, she got involved, despite her own reservations. Maybe the promise of a bigger house, family vacations, and less crowding appealed to her. Or maybe she had the same twisted gene that made her mother a cold, emotionless murderer. As of 2022, Diane Staude is still insisting she's innocent. 
I said what I was told to say, she explained to a media outlet. There is more to that than what people know. Diane says she's ready to explain what really happened, but the absurdity of that claim is hard to ignore. The case seems pretty open and shut, even from an outside perspective. Doctors confirmed that Sarah was poisoned with antifreeze. Diane confessed in her interview. Rachel left behind a diary detailing their plans and confessed quickly in her interview as well. However, Diane claims that while in jail, she was told that Mark had been greenlighted, that a hit had been put out on him and so someone must have taken him out. That's hard to believe when there's actual evidence that Diane was poisoning Sean and Sarah with antifreeze and that Mark had the same bloody ring around his mouth that Sean did from his traumatic death. Diane also brought up hard drugs, saying Mark was an addict. Although he was known to be a heavy drinker, no one else had previously mentioned his involvement in dealing or buying, so this seems extremely unlikely. The authorities have pointed out that there's no actual evidence to support Diane's claims about her husband's lifestyle. What more could there possibly be to the story? It seems unlikely that another party was involved. While the superficial description of Diane as the breadwinner of her family, an active member of her church, and a church organist might make it appear that she led a decent life, her actions prove otherwise, showing that she's just as cold as she ever was. In a 2022 interview, when asked about her daughter Sarah, Diane is quoting as having said, I'm sorry for what she went through, but you know, I'm sorry for what everybody goes through. I'm sorry for what I had to go through. In the end, Diane clearly still thinks the world revolves around her, and any inconvenience can be made to disappear.